in our main study on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man performing miracles and most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. The life of Jesus is documented in four books we find in the Bible. These four books are collectively referred to as the Gospels. And today we're going to begin in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. And you don't have to agree with what I say today, but you do have to take it seriously. In other words, I'm going to teach our view on what we believe the Bible is saying. And if you're not convinced, you need to dig into God's word for yourself to seek out the truth. And I want to encourage you, don't be led by your emotions and your feelings. Be concerned with what is actually true because there's nothing more important in life than knowing the truth. Nothing. We believe Jesus is the truth, came to tell us the truth, and to show us how to walk and live in light of the truth. Last week we saw Jesus at the point of being overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and dread over what he knew would happen to him in just a few days on the cross. And incredibly, in that moment, we saw Jesus not collapse, not quit, but instead take the focus off of himself entirely and cry out, Father, glorify your name. What an example Jesus is, what an example. And this week we're in the final week of Jesus' life before his death on the cross, known in Christianity as the Passion Week. And on the Sunday that we refer to as Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, revealing himself publicly as the Messiah, the long-awaited savior of the world. On the Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple for a second time. And today we're gonna look mainly at the events of Tuesday during this Passion Week. And so we're going to begin in John chapter 12, verse 37. And I'm gonna ask you to underline this whole first part because this is such an important principle. It says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And as we've discussed many times before, miracles don't produce faith. Our Father in heaven can speak audibly, and yet still, as we read last week, there will be those who will say, oh, it was just thunder. You see, miracles really only produce a hunger for more miracles. Signs produce a hunger for more signs. When Jesus was asked and demanded of, give us a sign to authenticate your ministry, what did Jesus say? Check this out, I'll raise the dead over there, I'll do this. Even though he did those things, when they demanded a sign, he didn't give them one. He said, one sign will be given to you, the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too shall the Son of God be in the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus, when asked for a sign, said, I'll give you a sign. I'll come back from the dead. And that's the only sign that you need to have is my resurrection. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and receiving the word of God. Hearing what the Bible says opening your heart to it, receiving it as truth. The Bible says that's what produces faith. But if you chase signs, if you chase miracles, the result isn't going to be greater and greater faith. You see, faith produces miracles, but miracles do not produce faith. Let's read verse 38. It says that, a better translation would be consequently, the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's the first verse of Isaiah 53, the messianic psalm. 
Verse 39, therefore they, and then underline, could not believe. Could not believe. That's a terrifying thought. Because Isaiah, now quoting from Isaiah 6, said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Strange verse, but what we see here is that those who would not believe in verse 37 are now unable to believe in verse 39. You see, God will honor the will of every person when it comes to a relationship with him. Even if that person's will is, I don't want to believe, I don't want a relationship with God. God will not overpower their will. Instead of hearing the voice of God, they'll hear only thunder. But if a person desires truth, if a person desires to know and understand God, even in the smallest way, the Lord will reach them, one way or another. But I don't want to undermine how terrifying this portion of scripture is. Those who did not want to believe were made unable to believe. We're going to come back to this issue again later in the text. Let's read verse 41. These things Isaiah said when actual word is because, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now tune into that. It says because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Jesus is quoting and John is quoting from Isaiah 6. It's the most famous vision in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah sees the glory of God. And here's what I want you to tune into. Who did Isaiah see? He saw Jesus. It says he saw his glory and spoke of him. You see, of course, we could have deduced this as well from what John the Apostle tells us in chapter one of his gospel when he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. The Apostle John's telling us no one's ever seen God the father. No man ever So what does that mean? Well, it means whenever you read about someone seeing a vision of God or having a direct encounter with God in the Old Testament, they are always seeing Jesus. Why? Because no man's seen the Father, ever. It's always Jesus. It's Jesus in the burning bush with Moses. It's Jesus appearing to Joshua before he goes off to battle. It's Jesus that Isaiah saw in his glory. You can know with certainty it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but, there's that big but, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they, and then underline this, loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's such a heartbreaking phrase to me. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And we've talked about this before, but being put out of the synagogue means you'd be excommunicated from the synagogue. Couldn't go there. And the synagogue was the center of Jewish life in the village. So you would be ostracized socially. You'd be ostracized religiously. People would be instructed to not do business with you. If you put your faith in Jesus and your spouse didn't, your spouse would be instructed to divorce you. It would cost you everything. And so what we're told here is that even among the rulers, even among the religious officials, many of them believed in Jesus, but they were unwilling to confess their belief in Jesus because of what it would cost them. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And I'm going to leave it to you to think through the difficult question of whether or not those in these last two verses were saved. 
You see, we're told they believed, but we're also told they were too afraid and unwilling to identify themselves publicly as followers of Jesus. And Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I point this out only to remind all of us that according to the Bible and to Jesus, our faith is not meant to be a private matter. It's not meant to be a private matter. It's not to be a secret. We're not to be ashamed of the name of Jesus and hide it from those around us so that our lives will be easier, socially, career-wise, personally. My personal speculation is that the people referred to here were not yet saved. I hope and, and believe that many of them became saved after the resurrection, when they, and they crossed that line into being willing to confess Jesus as Lord. But if you're in the place where you believe but you're unwilling to admit that publicly, that's not meeting the biblical requirement for what it means to be saved. Because if you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, how he was shamed publicly for you, there's no way you can be ashamed of him publicly. I'm gonna ask you to underline some things as we go through these next few verses because there's a flow here that I wanna make you aware of. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And, and then underline, he who sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, that actually means if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, underline, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. And then underline, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but, and then underline, the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say and what I should speak. And I know that, and then underline, last thing here, his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So of the person who's unwilling to believe in Jesus, Jesus says, I do not judge him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. It's telling us something incredibly significant about the final judgment, about that time in the future when every person who's rejected a relationship with Jesus stands before God. And we're told that Jesus isn't gonna have a, a notepad and a pen and he's gonna say, I judge you. That's, that's not what's gonna happen. Rather, the word that Jesus spoke, the gospel, will judge them. It will be declared... This is what Jesus did to deal with the problem of your sin. This is what Jesus went through to save you. This is the way Jesus made for you to be forgiven. This is the path he opened for you to be in his family forever. And the way in which that happens, the way in which it unfolds will require nothing else to be said because they will know the awful truth and I rejected him. And I rejected him. And I really believe in that moment those who've rejected the Lord will say, I have to go to hell. And they'll send themselves there. The word Jesus spoke, the gospel, will one day judge every person who's rejected him. But please hear the rest of the story because the same gospel that will condemn some 
to eternity in the lake of fire is the same gospel that saves us and brings us into the presence of God in the paradise that is heaven. That's why Jesus also says, and I had you underline, the Father who sent me gave a command. What was that command? We underlined it. His command is everlasting life. That's the command from God. Jesus came to preach everlasting life, to offer everlasting life, and to die to gain us everlasting life. The command the Father speaks to you and I is eternal life. Have it, receive it. God made man sovereign. That means he allows us to choose, as we said earlier, whether or not we want a relationship with him. The reason there has to be a hell that people go to is because God honors our sovereignty. If there's going to be free will, if man is going to be sovereign, there has to be a hell. Let me explain. God says, I am love, I'm light, I'm life, I'm everything good, do you want me? And in order for that question to be genuinely asked, in order for you and I to have genuine, real free will, there has to be the option to say no. And when we're saying no, we're saying, I don't want love, I don't want light, I don't want life, I don't want everything good. And in order for us to have that choice, there has to be an eternal place where those things do not exist. If there isn't, then it's not possible to reject them and we don't really have free will. The place that is necessary in order for us to have free will is hell. And please hear me, especially if you've not given your life to Jesus. There is no life, there is no love, there is no light, there's nothing good apart from Jesus. There is no way to have those things forever without Jesus. It's not that he holds those things as possessions. He is those things. He's the source of all of those things. You can't separate goodness from God. And if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting all of those things and he will give you what you want. Eternity in a place without them. And it won't be an angry God kicking you into hell. It will be a broken-hearted father saying, I respect your choice, your will be done. The gospel will either save you for eternity or it will condemn you for eternity. And Jesus ends his time with this crowd by passionately pleading with them, choose everlasting life. The command my father has sent me with for you is everlasting life, live forever. That's the command of God. And the Holy Spirit is still declaring that to this day. It's up to us whether or not we'll receive his message and obey that command. Well, Jesus will now enter the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem yet again where he will face a series of questions, almost an interrogation from the religious leaders. And they will question his authority, his integrity, his theology and his priorities, looking for any fault they can find. And little did these religious leaders realize that even in their efforts to find fault with Jesus, they were fulfilling biblical prophecy. For you see, when each family would bring with them to the Passover feast in Jerusalem a lamb to be sacrificed on Passover, that lamb would be set apart and would be scrutinized, would be examined by priests for four days before it was slain 
to give enough time for any blemish, any fault to come to light. They would be looking for any error at all with the lamb. And here on the 10th day of Nisan, four days before the Passover lambs were due to be slain, Jesus, the lamb of God that was slain for your sins and mine, will be examined to see if any fault can be found in him, our Passover lamb. So turn with me back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We're doing this flip just because we're going through the story in chronological order and John jumps straight to the Last Supper but there's a few things that happened before then. So we'll be in Matthew 21 and we'll begin in verse 23. Matthew 21 verse 23, it says, now when he came into the temple, Luke's gospel tells us Jesus was teaching and preaching on the temple mount, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? When they say these things, they're referring to the cleansing of the temple which had taken place within the last 24 hours. They wanted to know what gives you the right to come in here and turn over tables and drive people out. As usual, their question is an attempt to trap Jesus. For you see, if Jesus responds by saying, my own authority, they can say, well, you're a lunatic. You can't just go and act crazy and do whatever you want and then say, I give myself the authority to do this. And if Jesus responds by saying, by God's authority, then they can say, well, that's blasphemy. You're claiming that you can do what you want under the authority of God, that's blasphemy. But it never works when they try to trap Jesus. I love this, verse 24, but Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. In Mark's gospel, it adds that Jesus specifically said, answer me, answer me. Have you ever been in the place in life where you're asking God some questions about some things going on in your life or not going on in your life and your attitude just gets a little bit off and you begin to move into complaining and accusation against God and suddenly you're not asking God questions but you're questioning God. You're actually questioning his character and you're saying things like, Don't you know what you're doing, God? Did you just forget about me? Am I not worth your time? You got bigger things going on in Africa or something? Do you not really love me? Perhaps you've had that moment in your walk with God where the Lord responds with a a knockout blow that doesn't actually answer your questions but just puts everything back in perspective. And sometimes he doesn't say, well, of course I love you. Sometimes he just says, did I die for you or not? And that's it. And you know that the translation is son, daughter. Asking me if I love you is a really, really stupid question. And the greatest example of this would be Job. Many of you know that Job was a godly man, a good man who God used in a mighty way to teach millions of believers across millennia about suffering. But while Job is going through his suffering, We know what's going on. We get to see what's happening in the supernatural realm. We understand why God is doing it. Job doesn't know. His life's just seemingly gone to hell and he has no explanation. He's lost his family, he's lost all that he's owned and he's held his tongue for a long time but finally he gets to the point where he's basically like, what the heck God? Like, what's going on? And when God answers Job, it's pretty terrifying. And you can read it on your own time, but it begins in Job 38, and it is spectacular. And you can tell that Job regrets questioning God's character 
as soon as God begins answering him back because when God gives Job a chance to respond in chapter 40, that's how long it is before Job can respond. This is what Job says to God. This is all he has to say. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And that really cracks me up that last line because he's saying, I spoke once, I questioned you once, and then you answered. And he said, well, well actually, you're right. I, I spoke twice because I'm speaking now, but I'm gonna proceed no further. But God's like, I'm not done. I'm not done. He has two more chapters of questions for Job. And when Job gets to answer the Lord again in chapter 42, Job says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you will answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. All that to say, we can ask God questions, but we should not question God. We should not question his character because he may ask us a question back. And it's far better to trust and have faith in God. If in our moment of greatest questioning, we could see God for just a second, if we're thinking, doesn't God know what he's doing? If we could just see him for a second, our response would be like Job's every time. We would hate ourselves for even daring to question him and we would repent on our faces. If we could just see for a second, if we could just see Jesus on the cross for a second, we'd go, I've I've got no questions. Do, Do whatever you think is right with my life. Well, now Jesus reveals his question for these religious leaders. And he says to them, answer me. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Translation, was John a real prophet or not? So why does Jesus raise this specific issue? Well, it's because the ministry of John the Baptist was the moment when the religious leaders took a wrong turn a wrong turn they would never ever turn back from, as we shall see. So what was the baptism of John? I'll read to you from Luke 3.3. It says of John the Baptist, he went into all the region around the Jordan, the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. A baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So John's ministry was calling people to say, turn away from your sin Admit you're a sinner, recognize you're a sinner that needs saving, and it was in preparation for the arrival of Jesus, to get people's hearts prepared for Jesus. But we read here, and they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he's gonna say to us, well, why did you not believe him? If we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. Even King Herod had been afraid to arrest John the Baptist for the exact same reason. Pretty much all the people recognized he was a real prophet. And what a tragedy this is. Their dilemma in their mind is, well, everybody knows John was a real prophet, so if we say he wasn't a real prophet, the people are gonna turn on us. But if we admit that he was a real prophet, which everybody knows he was, then everyone's gonna ask us why we didn't respond to his message and repent. The religious leaders find themselves in the same tragic position that many, many people do. 
unwilling to respond to the truth even though deep down they know it's just that, the truth. And all because they chose to play into Satan's hand by allowing their pride to harden their hearts. See, they were there, they heard John's message. They knew it was real, but what stopped them is they were saying, well, I'm not gonna admit in front of all these people that I'm a sinner that needs saving. I'm not gonna admit that I can't fix myself. I'm a religious leader, I'm way too important to do that. I'm not gonna lower myself to that level. It's pride, it's pride. And so even when pretty much everyone around them recognizes that John the Baptist was a real prophet, they couldn't admit it, because doing so would be admitting that they were sinners who need forgiveness, something they were unwilling to do. Well, back in Luke 7, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people about John the Baptist, and he says this, but what did you go out to see out there in Bethabara in the wilderness at the Jordan River where John was ministering? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. You see, John's ministry was unique and different to any other prophet, and Jesus tells them why. He says, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So just like a herald announcing that the king was coming soon, John announced that the Messiah, Jesus, was coming soon, and people needed to get their hearts ready. And then Jesus says, for I say to you, among those born of woman, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, back to our text, John tells us, and when all the people heard him, when they heard what Jesus said, even the tax collectors justified God, underline justified God. So they agreed with Jesus, not just that John had a special ministry, but that John's ministry was to point the way to Jesus. In other words, they recognized Jesus as their savior. Now get this, because what the text says next tells us why they were able to recognize Jesus. Why could they see that Jesus was the savior and others couldn't? Having been baptized with the baptism of John. And what do we know? We know that it means if they were baptized by John, they had said, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need saving. I recognize who I am. I recognize my spiritual condition. So right here, we're being told the thing that enabled them to recognize Jesus was their willingness to be honest with themselves about their own spiritual condition. Just as the Pharisees' refusal to be honest about who they really were stopped them from being able to recognize who Jesus really was. You see, on the other hand, we read, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. Now, I really want you to tune into this. If you're, if you're into how salvation works, this is so important, because we're told here they rejected the will of God for themselves. What that's saying is the will of God was that they would recognize Jesus. Right? It says right there, they rejected the will of God for themselves. Just as Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. He tried to draw the Pharisees, but not with such power that he would overpower their free will. So the will of God is that none should perish, is what the Bible says. But they rejected the will of God. And this is a big theological concept if you're wondering why I'm hammering on this because there's a whole side of Christianity that will say, well, if God wills something, then nobody can stop it. But what we see here is that God desired, he willed 
that they would receive the message of Jesus that we just read about, everlasting life. That was the will of God. But his greater will even above that is that they would have free will, sovereignty. And so this is something where God desires all people to be saved, but he's not gonna force all people to be saved. He's gonna give us a choice. And then we're told why they rejected the will of God for themselves and how that happened, not having been baptized by him. Unwilling to admit their spiritual condition, they couldn't recognize Jesus. It's a tragedy, it's a tragedy wherever it happens today when we're unwilling to be honest about our brokenness and need for Jesus we'll find ourselves missing the truth, missing salvation, even when it's standing literally right in front of us. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, "Um, we do not know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you refuse to see the truth because you don't want to see the truth, if you reject the little bit of revelation God gives you, he's not gonna give you more. Well, that being said, Jesus is going to indirectly answer their question, the question of by whose authority he ministered in the form of these three quick parables. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, no, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. So a man has two sons, he says to both of them, go work in the family vineyard for the day. The first says, "Eh, I'm not gonna do that. But later on he's like, I had a bad attitude. And he goes and he works. The second says, sure thing pops, but he never goes. He never actually goes. So Jesus asks, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, oh, the first. So they agree that the first son who said no, but later changed his attitude, we might say he repented, That son did the will of his father. Despite starting out with the wrong attitude, he later changed his attitude and responded to his father's initial request. You see, Jesus has just got the Pharisees to testify against themselves without even realizing it because they are confessing that doing is more important than talking. Actions are more important than words. Talk is cheap. And Jesus says to them, assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent. You didn't regret it and believe him. So Jesus is using tax collectors and prostitutes, examples of the worst of the worst in Jewish society in their estimation. And he's using them as an example of people who began life with the wrong attitude, the wrong approach, the wrong choices. But later on, they changed their attitude when they heard the gospel, when they met Jesus, when they encountered Jesus. They repented. And Jesus says to these religious leaders, you guys are like the second son. You've been talking about God your whole life, paying lip service to God. But when it came time to actually back that up with action, when I sent John as a prophet to call you to repent, to admit that you're sinners who need saving, you didn't do it. You didn't follow through. You've been talking your whole lives, but you never actually done anything. Jesus is basically saying, here's the point of the story. You're full of it. That's the point. If the gospel comes to us, if the truth is shown to us, we must repent or risk having our hearts hardened forever. And Jesus says, listen, it doesn't matter how these people started, these tax collectors and harlots, 
when the truth was revealed to them, they changed. They changed. They did the will of the Father. You've been around the truth your whole life, and you've never responded to it. You can talk all you want, but when the rubber hits the road, there's nothing going on in your life. There's no real obedience. Second parable, and I'll explain as we go. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner, this is gonna be God the Father, who planted a vineyard, that's gonna be the kingdom of God, and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers, that's gonna be Israel, and went into a far country. So the picture is here, a landowner builds a vineyard and he totally decks it out. He plants the vineyard, he builds a tower in it so that a supervisor can look out over the whole land uh, so that there's shelter for the workers. He builds a wall, a hedge to keep out critters and foxes and so forth. He installs a wine press. This is a fully functional vineyard here that can produce wine. And then the landowner goes off to a land far away and he leases the land to a group of guys, vine dressers. And the arrangement basically would be, okay guys, you're gonna work this vineyard, you're going to cultivate the grapes, and then when harvest time comes, there's gonna be some sort of agreement to split the yield of the harvest. So the owner is gonna get like half the grapes and they're probably gonna get half as well. So they do all the work, their compensation is their part of the harvest. The landowner owns it all, so he gets half of it as his compensation. But now we read in verse 34, now when vintage time, that just means harvest time, drew near, he, the landowner, sent his servants, there are gonna be a picture of the prophets, to the vine dressers, that they might receive its fruit. So in other words, the picture here is that God sends his servants, the prophets, to Israel to receive its fruit. This is the good works Israel was supposed to do. If you know the story, God chooses Israel and his whole idea is I want you to be a blessing to the nations. I want you to represent me to the nations, to tell the nations about me, but they never get around to doing that. And so God sends the prophets to say to Israel, basically, where's your fruit? Where's your fruit? God expects a return for choosing you to be his people. It says in verse 35, and the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. This is exactly what Israel did to the prophets. Jesus asked them one time, he said, has there ever been a prophet in Israel who you did not kill? You always try to kill the prophets the Lord sends. Verse 37, then last of all, he sent his son, and you can figure out that that's Jesus, to them, saying, they'll respect my son. So just understand that even after all this, after they've killed his servants again and again, the owner of the vineyard comes in peace. He doesn't do what I do, is send some hired mercenaries to kill all the guys who are there and take back the vineyard. He sends his own son, verse 38. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they recognize, get this, they recognize that this is the owner's son and their response is to plot to kill him so that they can take control of the whole vineyard. They're saying, hey listen, the owner of the vineyard is far away and this is our chance to steal the inheritance, the future of the vineyard. This is our chance to take control. Verse 39, so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, now underline this, when the owner, this is Jesus talking to them now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Can you imagine the moment when Jesus says that? Not if the owner of the vineyard comes, but when the owner of the vineyard comes. What's he gonna do to those vine dressers? Verse 41, they said to him, 
Oh, he'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. The religious leaders are, for the most part, just blind to the reality of their situation. And they're even prophesying without knowing it that because Israel rejected Jesus, the gospel will be given to the Gentiles. The vineyard, the kingdom of God, will be leased to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from Psalm 118 and here's what's so interesting about that. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the coming Messiah who would be Jesus written hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. Psalm 118 is what the crowd is quoting from when they're yelling out titles at Jesus on Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the line of David. When they're yelling these things out, Hosanna, they're quoting Psalm 118. And so Jesus goes deeper into Psalm 118 and he says, haven't you read what the Bible says about the Messiah? Haven't you read that the Bible says Messiah is gonna be rejected by the builders, those who are trying to bring the kingdom of God to Israel? They're gonna reject him, the religious leaders, but he's gonna end up being the cornerstone, the most important part of God's kingdom coming to earth. Only it's not gonna be Israel that the kingdom's gonna be offered to now. So that prophecy that Jesus is pointing them to is he's saying, listen, Psalm 118 prophesies when Messiah comes, he's gonna be rejected by those who are in religious leadership over Israel. They're gonna say that this isn't a stone we can build on. We can't build the kingdom of God on this, but he's gonna end up becoming the very thing on which the kingdom will be built. That's a reference to the church. Verse 43, Jesus says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Kingdom's gonna be offered to the Gentiles now who will actually bear fruit for the kingdom. Verse 44, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It's the same truth we were talking about earlier. The same gospel will either save you or condemn you. You will either fall on the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, and admit as you fall on him that you are broken and in need of forgiveness, or that same Jesus, that same gospel will be your destruction. Verse 45, now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, <laughs> I love this, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Wait a minute, I think he's talking about us. It's like, slow clap from Jesus, right? Good job, guys, good job. Verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, again, that just blows my mind. They realize he's talking about them and they're like, oh, let, let, let's kill him. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. The Problem is they're on the Temple Mount, there's people everywhere and the people believe Jesus is a legitimate prophet. So they're like, oh, we can't do this right now. Just continuing into the next chapter in the third and final parable. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Now you gotta understand this. Weddings were a big, big deal back in the day. 
It wasn't like today where you actually get wedding invitations and you're like, oh, do we have to go? And the husband's negotiating with the wife over how long counts as an appearance at the wedding. Can I get you down below two hours? No, two hours? Okay, okay, we'll do two hours. It wasn't like that. In this time, most people in Israel are, are poor. They're lower class. They're living paycheck to paycheck, the equivalent of that. They're not eating real well. They're not living at a high standard. Life is hard. It's difficult. And you got to go to two, maybe three weddings in your life. And when you got to go to a wedding, this is going to be a week of of you not having to prepare food, a week of you eating food that you would never normally get to eat, getting to party like you never normally would. This was vacation, Super Bowl, Christmas, everything rolled into one. If you got invited to a wedding, you were ecstatic about it. If you got invited to a wedding that was being thrown by the king, that would be a once in a lifetime opportunity. You would have an experience you'd probably never have again in your life. And so you've got to understand that and understand how strange it is in this parable when Jesus says what the response was of those who were invited to the wedding. Because it says, and they were not willing to come. And they were not willing to come. Just as Israel collectively was not willing to accept the invitation sent through the prophets to them to come and be a part of the family of God, repent and turn and walk with the Lord. So verse four, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants treated them spitefully and killed them. See, Israel didn't just ignore the prophets God sent, they killed them. And in just a few days, they'd do the same to Jesus. Verse seven, but when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Exactly what would happen to Israel and Jerusalem in 70 AD. You may recall that it was Palm Sunday, the day that we think of as a big happy celebration. You may recall it was Palm Sunday when after riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey that Jesus looks out over Jerusalem, weeps over Jerusalem and prophesies, you didn't actually receive me. And as a consequence for that, you're gonna be laid to waste and scattered across the earth. Palm Sunday is the moment where definitively Israel has actually rejected Jesus. And Jesus prophesies the diaspora, the scattering of Israel across the earth beginning in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse eight, then he, the king, said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and find as many as you can, invite them to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. I love that. Being good or bad doesn't have anything to do with whether you're invited to the wedding. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. The gospel is going to go out to the church, through the church. Church is going to be born in Acts chapter 2 on the day known as Pentecost. And the kingdom is going to be offered to the Gentiles, you and I. Those the Jews and Israel would have said are completely unworthy. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment, underline wedding garment. You see, in most weddings, especially if you were wealthy, like a king, 
the one hosting the wedding would provide wedding garments, new robes, new dresses for all the wedding guests. And they would typically all be white. And the reason was so that the guests were not having any type of fashion show among themselves. The reason was so that there was no competition between the guests and the bride and the bridegroom. When they came in adorned spectacularly, dressed to the nines, they shone even brighter because everyone else was dressed in white and all attention was on the bride and bridegroom. Verse 12, so he, the king, said to him, the man who's not dressed in a wedding garment, friend, how did you come to be in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Uh, I, uh, um. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's the point of what just happened. Instead of accepting the invitation of the king and receiving a white garment from the king, this guy shows up and says, I'll just wear my own clothes. They're good enough. But they weren't. You see, trying to be a part of the family of God by showing up and wearing your own good deeds and saying, I'm a good person. That's really all I need. is not good enough. We're all sinners. We're all stained. We're all a mess. But the Lord has for each of us who accept his invitation a new robe, a robe of righteousness. You see, through Jesus, our sins are removed. They're taken away and we're given, the Bible says, his righteousness instead. The Bible says we're literally robed in the righteousness of Jesus. So when the Father looks at us, we're not wearing all of our sins and all of our mistakes. We're wearing the same righteousness that is Jesus. We're literally wearing his righteousness. And so when the Father looks at us, we're righteous. We're spotless. And Jesus is the only one who can give us that new garment, that new robe. And so for this man to show up in his own clothes, declining the king's offer to clothe him, would have been the most heinous insult to the king. Just as the thought of you or I standing before God, who's perfect in every way, and saying, I'm just as good as you, God, is blasphemous. It's insulting. What did Isaiah say about all our good deeds? He said, all our righteousnesses are like what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. We need to be robed in the righteousness of Jesus. In the righteousness of Jesus. All three parables reveal one overarching truth. Jesus is saying, you want to know by whose authority I do these things? I was sent by the Father to preach everlasting life. And I'm gonna be murdered by those I was sent to bring the message to. And so that everlasting life is gonna be offered to people that you would never expect. And they're gonna be there. And I'm the only way that you're gonna end up at the wedding. You gotta be robed in righteousness. Verse 14, for many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. What does he mean? Well, the invitation's gone out to everybody. How many are called? If the Son of Man be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Everybody's been called. Everyone's been invited. But few are chosen. Only a few are gonna say yes to the invitation. But how can they be chosen if they were the ones making the choice? 
Well, for me at least, for me at least, we could preach a 10-part series on this. I won't, don't worry. For me, Romans 8 satisfies this question beautifully. Romans 8, 29 through 30, I'll just read it to you. This is what it says about the process of salvation. It says, for whom he foreknew, the he being God, for whom he foreknew, because God knows everything, not just all knowledge, but God knows everything about time, past, present, and future. He foreknows who will use their free will to choose him. God is able to look at every person's life and every decision they'll make. Not just that, but he's able to look at their future in an infinite matrix and see every decision every person would make in every possible scenario in which they could be placed with every variation of every decision they could make in their life. He can see it all. And he knows what they're gonna do with their free will. He knows who will choose to love him and respond to him, and he knows who will reject his invitation. And please understand this. God knowing the future doesn't remove your free will. That's a completely nonsensical argument that because God knows the future, you don't have free will. That's not true at all. If I leave a cookie on the counter in my house and I know kid's gonna take that cookie, he's gonna steal it. My kid is not gonna get away from a consequence by saying, Dad, you knew there was a chance I would be tempted and I'd take that cookie. You basically predestined me to sin, so now you want to punish me for that? That doesn't make sense. No, no, no. Knowing the future doesn't remove free will from those who will live through that future. So God foreknows those who will choose him. And then it says, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the Lord sets a destiny for those he knows will choose him with their free will. He predestines them to spend eternity with them. And how does he ensure that destiny plays out? Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Bible says even the faith to believe in God is a gift from God. Who does he give that gift to? Those he knows will receive it. Those he knows will receive it out of their free will. And that's as close as we're gonna get to understanding salvation in this life. Well, in summary, let me say this. Bible says there's only one unforgivable sin. And when we stand before God, if we've not accepted his invitation, we're not gonna be judged based on a list of sins we've done. We're gonna be judged for one sin. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's what we saw in the religious leaders in today's text. To to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to turn down the invitation of the Holy Spirit to turn to Jesus over and over again to the point where your heart becomes so hardened that you're no longer savable. And that's something every person needs to understand. You don't have until the day you die. There are many people who reach the point of no return long before the day they die. They set their course, they make up their mind that they are unwilling to believe no matter what. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you haven't given your life to him and you're here today or listening to this online or watching this on the website, please, Jesus is inviting you. He's inviting you to be a part of his family. Don't assume there'll be more time later to decide. Don't make that assumption. You don't know that. Say yes to the God who is love, who is light, who is life, who is everything good. Be willing to believe today. 
And for the rest of us, this is a reminder that we may not have another chance one day to share the gospel with somebody. It's urgent. And I know that for many of you, your response to that point is probably the same as mine, which is you're thinking of people and you're thinking, but it's not yet time. They're not yet open. Then we should be praying with fervency and urgency that it would be time, that they would be open. We've gotta have an urgency about the salvation of those that the Lord has put in our lives who don't know Jesus. And if you can sense they're just not open yet, then let me challenge you. Are you praying, Father, please? Make them open. Do what you need to do to break them to get to that point. May they be broken by the rock of ages, not crushed, broken. And then lastly, for, for those of us dealing with the unexplained in our lives right now, I'm talking about unexplained difficulty, unexplained trials, unexplained, unanswered prayers. Let's go to God with our questions, but let's not question God. In other words, let's ask the Lord for guidance, for wisdom, for insight. Let's ask the Lord to empower us to be faithful through this, but let's not dare to question the character of God. The character of God. He was faithful yesterday. He's faithful today. He'll be faithful tomorrow. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never be proven unfaithful. Let's not dare to question the faithfulness or goodness of God, or we, like Job, will find ourselves ashamed when the Lord inevitably reveals himself, when he inevitably comes through yet again. Let's choose faith and trust instead. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, I pray for all among us who are going through the unexplained right now, mysteries and difficulties that we don't have answers for, questions that you don't seem to be answering right now. Father, in all of those areas, we begin by confessing, Lord, none of these things are happening because you're unfaithful. None of these things are happening because you've forgotten us. None of these things are happening because you're no longer good. You're always faithful. You never leave us nor forsake us. And you're always good. And we know that whatever we're going through right now, when we look back on this, once you've inevitably brought us to the other side, we will once again be found saying, you were faithful, you were faithful, always have been, always will be. So help us in the middle of the mystery right now to lift our voices and our prayers with the confession that you are faithful. You are faithful. You're faithful, God. We believe in it. We trust in it. We rest in it. And Father, I pray that you would fill us with an urgency for the lost. That if there's not an opening yet, we would pray with fervency for your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of those who are unwilling to hear, to save the lost. Even as we're praying, would you just put those people in your mind, allow a name or a face to come into your mind. And Father, we, we know that through your spirit, you, you see every person that you've laid on our hearts right now. And Father, we pray for them as individuals.
the simple prayer that you would do whatever it takes to break them and make them open to you, Jesus. Do whatever needs to be done to cause them to say yes to your invitation. Soften their heart. Expose the worthlessness of everything compared to you. Give them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would be open in the name of Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.